Thank you for downloading the weekly sermon from Trinity Reformed Church in Bloomington, Indiana. To find more great content, please check out our website at trinityreformed.org. Enjoy the sermon. Our scripture reading today is from the book of Acts, chapter 8, verses 1 through 25. So if you have a Bible, open it and read along with me. This is the word of the Lord, and it is eternally true. Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. And on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Some devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him. But Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house, and dragging off men and women. He would put them in prison. Therefore, Those who had been scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and began proclaiming Christ to them. The crowds with one accord were giving attention to what was said by Philip, and they heard and saw the signs which he was performing. For in the case of many who had unclean spirits, they were coming out of them, shouting with a loud voice, and many who had been paralyzed and lame were healed. So there was much rejoicing in that city. Now there was a man named Simon, who formerly was practicing magic in the city and astonishing the people of Samaria, claiming to be someone great. And they all, from smallest to greatest, were giving attention to him, saying, This man is what is called the great power of God. And they were giving him attention because he had for a long time astonished them with his magic arts. But when they believed Philip, preaching the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ... They were being baptized, men and women alike. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued on with Philip. And as he observed signs and great miracles taking place, he was constantly amazed. Now, when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen upon any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they began laying their hands on them, and they were receiving the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was bestowed through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give this authority to me as well, so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have no part or portion in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Therefore, repent of this wickedness of yours and pray that the Lord, and pray the Lord that, if possible, the intention of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bondage of iniquity. But Simon answered and said, Pray to the Lord for me yourselves that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. So when they had solemnly testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they started back to Jerusalem and were preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. But we come in our study of the book of Acts to a significant point of transition in this book. The structure of this book follows the expanding 
outline of mission that Jesus laid out in the first chapter, verse 8, when he said, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and into the uttermost parts of the earth. And the first seven chapters focus on the apostles' ministry and establishment of the church in Jerusalem. We've just concluded that. And here we embark on a, well, chapters 8 through 12, I can't do the math in my head. Chapters 8 through 12 is this next section, which focuses on the regions around Jerusalem and the spread of the gospel ministry and the church into those surrounding regions. And then in the first, uh, chapter 13 to the end of the book, we focus on um, more and more encroachment into the Gentile territories. And it, the whole book ends with Paul in Rome, the seat of Gentile power. And it ends with these words by Luke. It's fantastic. I love this last verse of the whole book of Acts. He says, there's Paul preaching the kingdom of God and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all openness, unhindered. Unhindered. It's the last word of the book of Acts. The message, the consistent message throughout this whole book that Luke wants us to see is the unstoppable power, world-changing power of God's word. Nothing can stand in its way. And we see that over and over again in new and different ways throughout this book. Nothing can stand in its way. It's unstoppable. Attempts to hinder the message become like, like moments of great advance. So as the intensity against and the pressures against the gospel ministry rise, the gospel just seems to like... Uh, just grow and grow and prosper under those conditions. It's like trying, somebody trying to put a fire out by kicking the bunch, a bunch of coals with their foot. The coals spread, and now a dozen new fires have sprung up. It says in verse 1, On that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. You might wonder, why the apostles don't leave. Isn't this their mission? God uses this persecution, this onset of persecution, to spread them out and to begin this outward advance and progress of the gospel. Those, those are the conditions in which God uses. But the, the apostles stay. Why do they stay? Well, it's like the same principle that a captain is the last one to, to abandon ship. This, is a, this would be a bad moment for the shepherds of the church to flee. They've got for the peace and security and protection of the church, they have to hold fast right under the pressure. Other people can leave, and in fact, I'm sure the apostles are helping them get out of trouble. This is the work of a shepherd, is to try to protect his sheep. I'm sure they're doing that work, and that's why they're scattering at this time. But the apostles are staying put. They need to stay put and see this through until God makes it clear that it's for, that's their time to leave. Notice what of the people who scatter, what they do. In verse 4, those who had been scattered went about preaching the word. Isn't that amazing? I think a lot of us think we're going to be faithful. You know, if, if, if sometime in the future I'm going to be faithful with the word of God. Maybe if I could just get to Africa, I'll be faithful with the word of God. I'll be evangelist if I could just move to Africa. There's a lot of people who have ambitions to be missionaries then and there, but they're not missionaries here and now. These, it's clear that these who go about spreading God's word were give, previously given to the work of spreading God's word in Jerusalem, that the whole community was lived and breathed communicating the message of the gospel. They were evangelistic at heart, and they take their heart wherever they go. 
and persecution does not squelch their enthusiasm for telling others about Jesus. What triggered this onset of persecution? Well, it was the death of Stephen, which we just read about at the end of chapter 7. Tensions have been mounting in Jerusalem as the church prospers. The religious leaders, the established order of the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin and the, the chief priest and his family, they're all feeling their prerogatives and their influence threatened. And there's these episodes of rising tension where they drag people in front of the, of the council. They throw people in prison. So far, there's been no blood spilled over it but you feel the pressure rising. And at the death of Stephen, the floodgates of resentment open up and the wrath of the powers that be is poured out on the church. So it's the martyrdom of Stephen, who was one of the seven servants chosen back in chapter six to oversee the benevolence ministry of the church, one of the first deacons in the church. Stephen's death was the trigger. The persecution was spearheaded by a zealous Pharisee named Saul. And we were introduced to him at the very end of chapter 7. And he's the first mentioned in chapter 8 here. Saul, we read previously, had over, or watched over the coats of those who had, put, had done the, the evil deed of putting Stephen to death. As they stoned him, Paul watched over their coats. And here we read that he was in hearty agreement. He gave hearty consent to D Stephen's death. Paul was a student of the famous teacher of the law, Gamaliel. And Gamaliel, back in chapter 5, had spoken his advice about how to deal with this Jesus problem, this Jesus movement, and he said, let it burn its course. I think it's wisest to just sort of see how this plays out. If it's not of God, it's going to come to nothing. So he sort of dismissed it, and they bought into that for a time, and it's what God used to help keep the peace for a season for the church in Jerusalem. Paul, though, I think we see, did not really agree with that policy. Soon as blood is spilt and we see his hearty agree, this, this is the way to deal with this problem. I think he, better than Gamaliel, sees that this Jesus thing is getting serious traction. It's got a logic, and it's powerful, and we need to stamp it out with, uh, what's the word in, in the extreme prejudice? How did you know that's what I was looking for? Extreme prejudice prejudice. Andrew knows everything. He's way ahead of you. <laughs> Thank you, Andrew. So with support of the council and muscle, he's got some troops that start going out with him. Saul begins in verse 3, we see ravaging the church, entering house after house and dragging off men and women. And he would put them in prison. Stephen may not be the only one to be martyred at this time because Paul, later looking back on this time, says, I persecuted the church to death. It's likely that other people died too. This is, very, this is not child's play. This is, there's like blood in the water and the sharks circle in. They want more blood. Saul is the arch enemy he, because, he positions himself, becomes the arch enemy of the church. And just in a few chapters, we're going to actually next chapter, chapter 9, a couple Sundays from now, we're going to see God completely transform this man into the greatest ever proponent of the church, defender of the church. It's incredible. What a testament to God's kindness and mercy. 
But right now, he thinks he's serving God by doing this work. Reflecting on this later, he explains to people, I thought I was serving the Lord by persecuting the church. I thought that this was contrary to God, contrary to God's word, contrary to all that Moses had taught us and the, the whole way of Judaism. And so, he, and he, in some sense, he's right. He is serving the Lord, but it's of no credit to him. God is using Paul to advance his cause. And we have to have faith for this, people. Persecution, if it comes, can be very discouraging, disheartening, It can get us off our game. The threat of persecution. Forget persecution, the threat of a raised eyebrow or somebody's disapproval or thinking we're stupid or behind the times or whatever keeps us off our game. But here we see that this God turns this this kind of backlash against the gospel and against the ministry into a means for spreading like wildfire the church of Jesus Christ. And you see that throughout the book of Acts. You see it through church history. The saying in, the ch- in church history, some of you know it, is the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Do you love the church? Do you love the glory of God? Do you want to see it advanced in this world, in our community, on, in your neighborhood, in your workplace? Then don't be ashamed and don't be intimidated. When you see the world pushing back, when you see you're getting a good rebound, Have faith. God may be up to something big. And the greatest evidence of this of all time is the death of Jesus Christ. Who thought that was a good day? Nobody, no follower of Jesus understood this was like the end. This was the what on earth has happened to what we were all excited about. Our Savior, our Master, our hope is hanging there on the cross right at the crossroads of Jerusalem, naked? Who would have thought that was a good idea or a good day for the church? And what life springs from the ground of the death of Jesus? What amazing things God was up to, the most amazing things. So would you have faith? Would you encourage me to have faith that pushback and difficulty is no obstacle to God? In fact, often, This is what God is using. There's a silver lining in it. There's something behind the cloud that God is up to that is tremendously great. We can't be afraid. Can't live in fear. Well, one of those scattered by this persecution enacted by Saul, led by Saul, was a man named Philip. And he's the second of the deacons mentioned in the list. Stephen and Philip is mentioned next. And Philip goes out to Samaria, and we have, we have two episodes here of his ministry in these surrounding regions. First in Samaria, and then God, the Holy Spirit, sends him down a road to Gaza in the south, and he meets the Ethiopian eunuch there and ministers to him. And that's what we're going to look at next week. This week we're going to look at Philip's gospel ministry efforts and the success that he's met with in Samaria. Verse 5 says, Philip went down to the city of Samaria and began proclaiming Christ to them. Who were these Samaritans? Samaria was located in the historical boundaries of Israel, directly to the north of Judea, where Jerusalem was. 
It's among those northern territories alienated from the tribe of Judah and the household and the rule of David since the days of Rehoboam, so almost since the days of David. Almost immediately, the tribes separate, the kingdom is divided, and it stays divided. It's never reconciled. There were attempts at reconciliation. There were wars and battles to try to forge things and bring things to a resolution, a peaceful end, but it, they never succeeded. These people worshipped Yahweh, sort of. They were syncretists. They had this, syncretism is when you mix things from other religions with your religion. There's a lot of this going on in South America. Paulo Coelho, the author, author of The Alchemist. There's a lot of like Christian images and ideas, uh, but there's also a lot of just spiritualism and paganism and magic mixed in with his writings. This is a big thing in South America and other parts of the country where Christianity and paganism mesh together. So it was with the Samaritans. They held to the, book, the five books of Moses, the, the law, the Torah, but not the rest of the scriptures. And they had their own competing worship system, their own temple in Samaria for, that served the needs of the northern tribes, but it was the, the, not the authorized place of worship. So there was this competing worship systems and tensions between the people. They were half-breed Jews. They had intermarried um, with other peoples, and there was not a pure line preserved among them. And we read in the scriptures that Judean Jews from the south, where Jerusalem was, Judean Jews, had no dealings with Samaritans. This is the state of affairs at the time of Jesus. We read about that in John 4. Jesus at one time had explicitly told his disciples not to go to Samaria when they went about on their preaching journeys. He said, stay away from the cities of Samaria. And the Samaritans, when Jesus was just trying to pass through to get back to Jerusalem, had forbid him lodging. And they said, no, we're not putting him up. When they found out that he was on his way to Judea, they would not be hospitable to him. So much was the antipathy and the the, the distrust and the disunity between these peoples. Still, Jesus had done a little preaching there. You might remember the woman at the well. This happened in Samaria. One of the times Jesus passed through this region, he stops to get a drink of water and he, he talks with a woman and she's astonished that he's talking to her. The disciples are astonished that he's talking to her. But Jesus spends significant time there and eventually, she brings people from the town to come and hear this man who showed, told me all the things that I had ever done. So he had done some spade work there in Samaria. Maybe this is the same town that Philip goes to. We don't know. It just says the city of Samaria, which is actually a region. We don't know which city. Maybe the capital city is what he's referring to. We don't know. This is to whom Philip goes. And this is a pretty amazing thing. He goes there to declare the kingdom, to preach Jesus Christ, to bring the new good news of the gospel. And this is in line, very much in line with the mission, and it's a very significant mission. It, is, it flips everything on its head. Previously, to, be, to come and worship Yahweh and be numbered among God's people, you had to come in. And now the gospel is going out to you. It's going out to the nations. It's breaking down divisions and walls. God is up to the work 
of making a new people for himself from every tongue and tribe and nation and knitting them together by his spirit as one body of Christ. That's not easy. And that, be, that's, that shows itself to be not at all easy to accomplish in the pages of Acts. It's one of the biggest challenges that the apostles deal with constantly and will be dealing with in the next few weeks. Philip goes to them and declares the good news of Jesus. How is Philip received by them? It's amazing. What amazing fruit. With one accord, says verse 6, they were listening carefully to Philip, what Philip had to say. He's preaching Christ to them. He's, God is adding confirming signs to his gospel ministry of the word to give further evidence and confirmation of his um, of God's blessing and the authenticity of this message. They're seeing the wonderful deeds that, that Philip is performing, and they are believing. They come to faith in Jesus Christ. They, can, they, they are baptized into that faith it, with great success he's met with there. And this was all cause for much, rejo- much rejoicing in the city, verse 8. Can you imagine being there? Imagine hearing the news. We want to think about what they're hearing, and it helps to understand what they're hearing and the power of it if we situate ourselves a little bit in the pagan society and frame of view, frame of reference that they're under. And Simon, the magician, And his presence in this story helps us understand and appreciate the kind of fearful oppression that these poor people live under prior to the gospel coming. The response to Philip, this joyful acceptance of the gospel, consenting to baptism, becoming part of the church, is all the more remarkable because of the influence that they had been previously under. The Samaritans had been captivated for some time by this man, Simon, a magician or a sorcerer who had bewitched them or had captivated their attention. Simon Magus is the name that history gives to him. The lore of church, there's lots of other writings uh, surrounding this period of history in the church in the first couple of centuries of the church. And he's quite the figure in those non-apostolic, non-authoritative writings. A lot of it may just be legend, I don't know, but usually when there's enough legend going on, you know that there's something underneath. Simon is a pretty interesting figure. He's, but he's one of a number of people. There's a, this is paganism. This is the first little foray of the church and of the gospel into pagan territory, or something like paganism. This is sort of a halfway house between Gentile and Jew, Samaria. Intermixed paganism, syncretism, interbreeding, sort of a, a mid This is the first little foray into Gentile world. And what do they meet, are met with? Superstition, magic, sorcery, commonplace, the norm, the world over. This is the norm in paganism. Gentile culture at this time is fundamentally pagan. What is 
what does the pagan worldview and outlook see? What is it, what's its cosmology? It's a world inhabited by spirits. It's a world where, the, where spiritual beings are real and present and they indwell in things and we are subject to them. They sometimes, they're not really benevolent, but they can be manipulated. It's, it's a world of sup, bound up with superstition where there are Well, I don't know what to say. I almost want to have Stephen come up and, and talk to us about this. He's, he's our resident expert about pagan cosmology. But this is, a, you, have to, you have to like think hard as a Christian who has known the gospel. Many of us have grown up in Christian homes to understand how radically different this worldview is. They're afraid of spirits. Spirits are everywhere. And spirits are, they're the bogeyman. But they're also maybe the thing that you can, maybe with enough tricks or enough manipulation, you can sort of influence and curry favor with and try to please. And therefore, men like Simon, who are expert in the art of this manipulation, are, are, have supreme authority. They're like the high priests of pagan culture. And they're all through the world at this time. So there, this is our first encounter with this expression of paganism. It's not going to be the last as we go through the book of Acts. The presence, ultimately, the, I think Luke's reason for, for putting Simon here and having us interact with this figure is so that we will see how easily they fall to the word of the gospel and the, power, and the truth of Jesus Christ. They just keep falling. They cannot, they cannot stand. Simon himself recognizes some, something superior that he has to bow the knee to and get on board with as soon as Philip comes and preaches and he, they see the deeds that are being done. But for a time, this man, Simon, hell, keeps the people fascinated. In verse 9, we see that he's astonishing the people, claiming to be someone great. Verse 10, we see everybody, both small and great, are giving attention to him and calling him the great power of God. In verse 11, we see that he had for a long time astonished them with his magical art. Simon was a big deal. What do you think about magic and sorcery? Is it real or is it fraudulent? The practitioners of this, witches and, and wizards, are they just dress up, playing dress up? Or are they on to something? Do they, are, is there some validity, some power, true power at work through them or in them? Or what do you think? What's your view? Scripture would have us see that this is real. There are spirits. And there are people who are skilled and have developed the skills to manipulate them and to curry favor with them and to commune with them. This is Scripture's view. This is why Scripture condemns it so severely. God would not so severely condemn wizardry and sorcery and necromancy and spiritism and mediums in his law consistently if there wasn't real danger and a real potential of corrupting the heart of man and the community of mankind in this way. If there wasn't real danger. 
Not that every self-proclaimed witch or medium or spiritist is legit. There are many frauds and pretenders in this world. I, what was that town I went to in Arizona? What is it, Josh? Sedona? Sedona. You guys ever been to Sedona or places like that? There probably are real witches and, and spiritists there, but it's just like, it, that's what it, those places specialize in, is the, merkin, the, the, the merchants of this stuff. But you, you get the sense a lot of it's fraudulent and just hucksterism. But I believe there are people who are, have succeeded in communing with spirit, the spirit world and have developed techniques to manipulate evil spirits and curry their favor. Simon was a real foe. That's my point. Simon was a real foe, a high priest of an old pagan order, a real competitor for the hearts and minds of the people. But, but Luke wants us to see that Jesus easily triumphs over this and all that it stands for. The sorcery of Simon and the culture of pagan superstition surrounding him succumbs to the word of God. As soon as the true word of the gospel shows up in this community, the people who had been fascinated and held in bondage and captivated by this man, Simon, immediately start to accept Jesus Christ. Why, what is this message? What's the difference between the message of the gospel and the message of pagan superstition? What's the difference? It's done, it's over? I think it's bound up in this word, Father. Jesus, the God, Jesus brings us to the Father. The Father is the creator. The thing to which all the spirits and all the men and all creation is accountable. Paganism sees nothing outside of its system. It's all one. There are spirits and everything. It's all one big mix. And, and we have to learn to get on within this system. And Christianity is something completely different. It has a creator over the creation, distinct from and over the creation. And he is good. And that is powerful. He is a father. And if we will come to him through his son, Jesus Christ, we come to a benevolent, kind father who watches over us, who hears our prayers, who anticipates our needs, who loves to give good gifts to his children. We don't have to manipulate him with all kinds of, you know, rigmarole. We don't have to, like, chant things. And can't, we don't have to do any of this old stuff of old paganism and of superstition. It's done. So that's what Aaron means. It's done with this one word, Father. And Jesus brings us to the Father. What a relief to know the goodness of God our Father and to, ha and to be able to come to him in prayer and trust that he's looking out for us. And you have to imagine that they're hearing, this is what they're hearing. Jesus, the gospel of, of Jesus Christ and the, the spread of his kingdom and the Father God with whom we now have reconciliation and peace, adoption and sonship is the best news that the world could imagine and a relief, a powerful and potent relief to old paganism.
Do not be enticed by the world of magic and do not be intimidated by it either. First of all, do not be enticed by it. Young people, are you listening? Do not be enticed by it. God warns sternly against this and consistently. I just want to read you what he says in his law, Deuteronomy 18. There shall not be found among you anyone who makes his son or his daughter pass through the fire, one who uses divination, one who practices witchcraft, or one who interprets omens, or a sorcerer, or one who casts a spell, or a medium, or a spiritist, or one who calls up the dead. For whoever does these things is detestable to the Lord. So young people, stay away from it. Stay away from the occult. Stay away from sorcery, spiritism, Ouija boards. Stay away from it. Those who dabble in these things, even for a laugh, are detestable to the Lord. I also don't take them seriously. They're nothing to Jesus Christ. He has authority over all things. They, they fall before the king of kings. The demons, we read, who are behind these movements shudder before God at the thought of God. They shudder because they're accountable to him. So do not live in fear of the demonic, not in your personal life, in terms of your faith. If God is for us, who can be against us? This is our understanding of the gospel and, and faith in, through faith and our understanding of the Father. If God the Father is for us, who can be against us? This is our attitude towards superstition and the demonic realm. If God is for us, who can be against me? And don't be intimidated in your evangelistic witness. When you come up against witches and wizards and all, which increasingly we are, there is a revival of paganism in the vacuum created and left by secularism. Paganism is coming back from the dead. Josh Congrove edits a journal for the university, and somebody submitted a paper recently, academic paper, math journal. And in the dedication, am I getting this right, Josh? Okay, a student he has at, at the university in a paper, in their acknowledgement says, I worship the goddess Isis. That's who I serve. Isn't that amazing? It's more and more common. Don't be intimidated by it. It's nothing to Jesus Christ and the power of his gospel. Well, the people believe in the city of Samaria. They receive the word with joy. Simon himself believes and was baptized. Simon sticks close to Philip, we see, and was constantly amazed himself by the signs and great miracles that God was performing through Philip, verse 13. This one who had so astonished in um, the city with his magic arts is himself now astonished by the true power of God as it shows up, at least for a time. And this is one of the interesting things about the passage is to con contemplate what's Simon's real relationship with Jesus Christ. I think that what it shows is that he never really leaves the old system. He ends up being cursed by Philip, or by, by the apostle Peter at the end, and instead of repenting and doing what Philip commands him to do, which is to turn in prayer to God, he, 
he wants a magus. He thought himself the magus, and, knew, and now Peter shows up and shows himself to be more powerful than him, and, and we'll see this, I think. But he, I don't, he refuses to pray as Peter commands him at the end. He refuses to pray. He says, you pray for me. I don't think he ever really leaves the system. Well, verses 14 to 17 bring back in the apostles. The apostles get word back in Jerusalem that the gospel has taken root in Samaria. They send a delegation of Peter and John to go to Samaria in order to pray for the believers that they might receive the Holy Spirit, verses 14 and 15. And that's because in verse 16, he, the Spirit, had not yet fallen upon any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they began laying their hands on them, and they were receiving the Holy Spirit. Now, that sequence of events is tricky to understand. And it has been the source of a lot of controversy in the church and a lot of divisions in the church and a lot of very different practices throughout different expressions of the church. And if you're yourself sitting there wondering, well, how does this all work? They're believing, but then the Holy Spirit had not fallen on them. What, what gives? You, I, I have sympathy for you. <laughs> this is tricky to understand. Let me tell you what I think is the best way of understanding this sequence of events. First, this falling upon them by the Holy Spirit does not imply an absence of the Spirit's work in the lives of the Samaritans to this point. We have to let the clear teachings of Scripture interpret the unclear teachings of Scripture. If there's unclarity here, the rest of Scripture clears it up and, and assures us that wherever people are calling Jesus Lord, they only do that by the Holy Spirit. Here we see a whole city confessing Jesus, submitting to the gospel of the kingdom, being baptized. That doesn't happen except by the Holy Spirit. So his, he's been operating in their hearts and among them up to this point. What does it mean? that the Holy Spirit comes later. Well, Luke is referring to here the outward confirming evidences of the Spirit that had been poured out previously in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost, and then again in chapter four. The gift of tongues. I believe that's what he's referring to. They had not had this gift of tongues given to them. They had been baptized, they had believed, fruit of the Holy Spirit, but this external sign evidence of the Holy Spirit had not been granted to them to this point. And this is why, part of why the apostles come to confer this sign by the laying on of their hands. Why doesn't this sign come immediately to the Samaritans upon their conversion? Well, what does the sign mean? What does this gift of tongues mean? Remember when we talked about this in Acts 2, what we said was that this was a sign of what, of what God was doing now through Jesus Christ, that the gospel was going out to the nations. And so it comes, the evidence of the Spirit comes in this sign of languages that were not formerly known. They received the supernatural ability to proclaim the great deeds of God in languages that they had never learned before, that the people around them spoke and heard. And this was a built-in evidence of what God is doing now. He is sending the gospel into the world. To the nations. Consider the significance of this moment. This is the first little foray, the first test of this mission and the significance of the sign. It's come now into Samaria. 
to these half-breed sort of pseudo-Gentiles. This is the first test. There's a bigger test that's about to come in chapter 10 with Cornelius. He's a real Gentile. Consider the significance of this, guys. There are serious cultural and religious boundaries that have to be crossed here. These are people at odds with each other. These are people who have long histories of prejudice against one another. And you want us to be united under one banner, Jesus Christ? That's tricky business. And so what's going on here is this gift is coming to them and it's coming under the most unimpeachable authority possible, <laughs> the apostles, so that everybody knows this is on, game on, this is happening. The Samaritans are with us. This is God confirming through the laying on of the apostles' hands that the gospel is in fact going to the world. And some, there's a new game afoot. Are you with me? I think that's what's going on here. And it's very important. So it's like a, uh, it's an undeniable sign being imparted by an unimpeachable source. So that everybody back home will know that we're now friends. We have to accept these people. They're part of our family now. And that's going to continue also with Cornelius so that everybody sees this is happening. Simon sees this. What does he make of it? He's already been impressed with the healings and the exorcisms performed by Philip. By Philip, This new apostolic power through the laying on of hands really intrigues him, and he craves for it himself. I see that they lay their hands, and people receive this amazing sign of languages that they didn't know before. If only I could do that with my hands. So Simon offers to the apostles money in exchange for this power. I want to be able to do that. I can see how the good things that could come my way if I had that. And Simon, by this offer of money, forever leaves his mark on history. There's a sin that gets named after him, the sin of simony. Anybody heard of the sin of simony? It's a sin meant to describe anybody who's trying to obtain spiritual power or position in the church through illegitimate means, especially through money. And that's what, that's what Simon has the credit now forever of introducing to us this potential, and, and it gives it a name, simony. Who gives spiritual gifts to the church? Let's stop and consider. Who gives spiritual gifts to the church? Do the apostles give them? Does the pastor give them? Does the spiritual, tis, test, spiritual gifts test give them? <laughs> Who gives spiritual gifts to the church? The Spirit of God. What does that, just stop and think, what does that mean? He gives them first according to the will of God. He gives them unequally, we know that. We see how different 
our gifts are, our abilities are, our positions are in the church. But the fact that the, that they, the gifts that we have come from the Spirit of God, what does that mean? It means we have to be content with what we have. And it means we have to consider the purpose that the gifts are given. Why does the Holy Spirit give gifts? Why does the Holy Spirit give gifts? What? To build up others. What does Simon want this gift and, and power for? To build up himself. How antithetical to the nature of, to the whole thing, to the nature of the gospel, to the spirit of Jesus Christ. How antithetical is this? Simon's request and demand for a gift or his desire for a gift. The Holy Spirit gives gifts. Are you content with the gift that you have? Are you jealous of somebody else's gifts or position in the church? I want to tell you a story. Maybe you've heard it before. I know some of you have. I spent the first two years of my time in the pastor's college really depressed. Not because of the demands of the work. Not because I, was, I felt like I wasn't getting my money's worth but because I saw other people around me doing better than me in a thousand ways. And I was jealous of them. And so I left depressed and discouraged because I wanted to have their gifts for myself. I wanted to have what they had. I wanted to be all things to all people. I wanted to get the teacher's approval. I wanted to have that answer that my classmate over here had. I wanted that, and I was discouraged and depressed and defeated and beat down when time after time, week after week, somebody outdid me. True story. What a waste of an education, but that's me. And then one night I went to see a lecture on campus, the invitation of Aaron Jones, it was about an economy, about what an economy is. It's a really great lecture, super insightful, and I went away depressed. <laughs> Why? Because I didn't already know that. And there was somebody just there as a living reminder of what I'm not. That's me. And so I did what I always did when I felt like that. I prayed for wisdom. Oh, God, give me wisdom. Make me grow. I want to grow. Make me wise like that man. And then I suddenly realized, by God's grace, this is a defining moment in my life. I was able to step out of myself and see what I was doing, why I was doing it, and that I had done this a thousand times. This was my go-to prayer when I was feeling this way. This was my incantation. Seriously. 
stay with me. I was praying for wisdom and God helped me understand why I was praying for wisdom. Why was I praying for wisdom? Because I wanted to be thought wise. I wanted people to see me as wise because that's my God. I don't want to be stupid, Jody. I want to be up there. And I want people to see me up there. That's what I need to be happy. That's my God. And God graciously helped me see that that's what was going on and had gone on for years and gone on daily in my life. And that every prayer of wisdom that I was praying was an appeal to God that he mercifully refused. He mercifully shut me down and kept wisdom from me because of what I would do with it. Kept it ever out of my grasp. And so what did I, I, what did I do? I repented. And here was the, here's, how, here's what my repentance looked like. I said, God, thank you for showing that to me. Now every time I, I'm tempted to pray for wisdom, I'm going to pray for contentment. I just want to be happy being me, stupid me. And this was, the lights came on. The third year of my pastor's college experience was great. I still struggle with this, but I'm remarkably freed from it. Remarkably free. Because I've come to see that I am accepted of the Father through Jesus Christ. And I am part of a body. And that the gifts around the table with me are my gifts. In you. Not in a way that makes me feel proud or builds me up, but a way that encourages my humility and dependence on God in the body of Christ. But they are my gifts, and I can rejoice in them. Can you rejoice in the gifts around you? It's a struggle for a lot of us. Every jealousy, covetousness, all of our greed, all of our envy is contrary to the nature of the Spirit of God and what he's doing, building his kingdom. And we got to keep it down. We got to repent of it. We need more of those epiphanies that Jody had walking down across campus and see why we pray and what, we, what we're after and why we seek for it and why we pray the way we pray. It's not all good. Peter's rebuke of Simon is severe and it shows the seriousness of his sin and the seriousness of the sins underneath that feed sins like these. Covetousness, greed, ambition. Peter says to him, verse 20, may your silver perish with you 
because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have no part or portion in this matter, for your heart is not right before, before God. Therefore, repent of this wickedness of yours, Simon, and pray the Lord that, if possible, the intention of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bondage of iniquity. That's what I've come to see I was in in those years. What are you here? Remember Ananias and Sapphira? Do you remember how that's an opportunity, was an opportunity for us to check ourselves and examine our hearts? Well, here again, here's Simon. What are you after? What are you here for? What are you seeking? Why do you want to grow? Is it so that you can lord it over people? In Jesus' kingdom, the highest position you can achieve is the servant of all. He, the Spirit gives his gifts so that they will be a blessing to others. And the fruit of his Spirit is lowness of mind. <laughs> you know, we are to, we're in, this, in the kingdom of Jesus, we are to see others as better than ourselves and more worthy. And our greatest ambition is to be to just be helpful and to build up the body of Jesus not to seek our own advancement or glory, but the glory of God. Is your heart right with God? I think that's one of the applications and the questions that comes from, from Simon. Peter's rebuke is severe, but it's not without hope. He says, pray the Lord, Simon. Repent and pray, and maybe God will bless you and for, with forgiveness. Seek him with a spirit of humility and repentance. So, if you see yourself in Simon, I've seen myself in Simon, if you see yourself in Simon, do not despair. Do not despair. Do follow, follow Peter's advice. Turn to the Lord. Repent. What does Jesus say? He who comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. Jesus died for the sin of simony. Jesus died for the sin of greed and ambition and vainglory and hypocrisy. Jesus died for the, sin, for the most awful sins. He knew what he was here to do, and he did it. And now he freely offers forgiveness to us for the most heinous things. Does Simon come? I think Simon shows himself to be still in the old system. All of his assumptions are wrong. He seems to be the one person in the town left behind. It's... Simon is a, is a magus. He's a mediator between men and the spirit world. And when Peter says, repent, what does Simon say in response? When, he, when Peter says, pray, Simon, seek the Lord, Simon, what does Simon do? He wants a magus for himself. 
he turns to Peter and the apostles and says, you pray for me. You pray for me. I can't. You pray for me. Brother and sister, can you pray to the Lord? Right now you can. No matter what your sin is, no matter how awful, this is the wonderful privilege of the gospel. You can pray to the Lord. You can seek him in repentance and he hears you. You don't have to go through me. You don't have to go through a magus. You don't have, you don't, that, there, that is empty and contrary to the Lord. He, Jesus Christ is the one mediator between God and man. And there he is, standing forever to be your advocate. And you can go to him in prayer. This is the wonderful privilege of being a Christian. But many people don't come. Many people won't believe. Many people won't accept the truth of it. Do you accept it? Come to him. Bring your sin to Jesus and be healed today, right now. Go to the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you very much for your word, for its ministry in our lives. Thank you for the truth. that we can come to you, Lord. That we can have hope of being received, of being washed and cleansed. Oh, wash and cleanse us, Lord. Have mercy on us as a people today. Have mercy on me, a sinner, today. Cleanse me, Father. Cleanse all who turn to you. Assure us of your mercy and your kindness. Help us to trust you. Help us not to be led astray by superstition or unbelief or hard-heartedness. Help us not to be deceived, but to see and know the truth, Lord, and to cling to Jesus, our Savior, by faith. In his name we pray, amen.